Good afternoon, everyone. I'm constitutional attorney, Catherine Henry. Welcome to week 17's episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. Today, man, today is going to be jam-packed full of information, although we're only talking about one court case. I'm not even gonna go through the entire procedural history of everything that happened at the lower level and everything that's happened at the appeals court level. I'm gonna keep it as simple as possible for you, but you, as a voter, as a citizen, you need to know what this is about. Now, definitely, if you live in Michigan, you better listen to this whole thing. Guaranteed, you need to know. But even if you don't live in Michigan, if you have any kind of vested interest in what happens in the United States in general, we all know what happens in Michigan during national elections affects what happens in the entire country. Michigan and Florida are two of the states that are watched until the very end because they can tip one way or another and have a lot of those electorate college votes. So today, <laughs> uh, as we get started, man, how to best describe in case you didn't happen to see the little preview video that I did yesterday. Well, uh, let's take a look here. I'm going to see if I can make my screen any bigger for you guys. I tried that last time and it didn't quite work, but I know it's, it's possible somewhere. There we go. Okay. So if you Google, uh, the name Matt DiPerno, the very first, I might've, what did I Google actually? Nope. Just Matt DiPerno. I didn't add anything else to it. Uh, this I did yesterday and you could see Google gave me 55,000 results in less than one second. The top three that it decides to uh, call as top stories. Of course, the sources are mainstream media, but M live, the Detroit news and CBS. Matt DiPerno, Trump's pick, wins Republican endorsement for Michigan Attorney General. DiPerno wins GOP Attorney General race after runoff. Michigan GOP picks Trump-backed candidates Christina Carmo and Matt DiPerno for State Attorney General and State Secretary of State nominations. This is the guy I'm talking about, but am I really talking about him? I'm talking about, uh, well, let me put it this way. This guy right here, Matt DiPerno. Two main things put him into the running, if you want to word it that way, for Michigan Attorney General. Definitely, it's two main things that carried him through to get all the votes needed to secure that Republican Party nomination this last weekend at state convention. Number one is, uh, and these are not in the order that they came, but number one is the endorsement by President Trump. Yes, President Trump did endorse Matt in his race for AG. Number two, and keep in mind, if you didn't know, if you've been living under a rock or whatever, there were three individuals running for that spot. Matt, who's a private practice attorney. Uh, Tom Leonard, who is an attorney, has been a prosecutor for many years, was also the um, Michigan House of Representatives um, uh, Speaker of the House. And um, Ryan Berman, who is has been a private practice attorney, a defense attorney, a police officer, um, a prosecutor. He's been, I believe, a prosecutor even down in Florida, as well as in Michigan. Um, and uh, most recently, he's been serving as a state representative uh, in, I believe it's District 38 or 39, 
that's all changing. That doesn't really matter. But anyway, so those were the three, right? Trump came into the race to uh, endorse Matt. Um, so why did he? Well, the other main thing that put Matt really into the running to get all the votes he needed was the one big case, his election day case. He filed in November uh, 23rd, actually, November 23rd, 2020. He, on behalf of a client, filed a case in Antrim Circuit Court to essentially challenge the procedures used to arrive at the results, to challenge the validity of what they are saying uh, were the results in Antrim County for um, a variety of races, actually. So um, if you want to look at his page, um, you can see he's made, this is actually just his law firm page, uh, but he's actually made his law firm page the I guess the campaign page. Um, you could donate to get him elected. Um, you can donate to stop the election fraud that's towards the case that he's working on. Uh, he's um, got some press releases and videos. There's um, audit affidavits, Bailey documents, which relate to the case that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, anyway, this whole thing is basically about two things, his race for AG and his case in Antrim County Circuit Court to get to the truth about what was really happening, at least in Antrim County, when it relates to uh, the Michigan elections. Okay, so let's take a step back for a minute. We're going to look at what recently happened, okay? This Antrim County election fraud case. Uh, this case is uh, something that was decided in the Michigan Court of Appeals, which I'll explain in just a minute. And uh, the three judges involved were Cameron, Kavanaugh, and uh, Gadola. I used to work at an elementary school, Gladiola, so I almost wanted to read that last name that way. Anyway, uh, this case is, uh, let's see, I guess I'll go to full screen here. William Bailey uh, was the plaintiff. I believe Matt calls him Bill Bailey somewhere throughout here. Uh, yes, Bill Bailey. Um, so anyway, uh, William Bailey, uh, he sued Antrim County. Uh, the Secretary of State of Michigan is also listed as an intervening defendant. And uh, this case from the Michigan Court of Appeals was decided and published, if you will. Uh, it was released for publication April 21st, which was just five days ago, at 9.20 in the morning. And uh, you can find the um, court file number for the Court of Appeals right, well, I guess you can't see me uh, hovering over that. It is uh, the, where it says number 357838. And then below that, Antrim County Circuit Court. And then it says LC, lower court case file number is 2020-9238CZ. I tell you that because yesterday I had somebody ask, for that information in the preview video we did. All right, so uh, as far as the allegations and relief requested, let's look at what's going on there. First of all, let's understand who the parties are. Plaintiff, the plaintiff in this case is a voter from Antrim County and he participated in the November 3rd, 2020 election. The original defendant in the case was Antrim County. It was just the plaintiff, and Antrim County. Later on, the Michigan Secretary of State intervened, mean, means they requested to become a party in this case. And Matt, uh, on behalf of the plaintiff, his client, 
actually objected, but the court allowed the Michigan Secretary of State to come in as a party. Now, at the time that I was talking to Matt about um, some strategies and whatnot on his case, the court hadn't yet done that. And uh, quite frankly, we're not going to go into much detail about this, but the court was already essentially giving uh, rights and um, uh, preferences to the Michigan Secretary of State even before they uh, had been actually admitted as um, an intervener defendant. And uh, that's not right. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. So what happened? Well, in this complaint, the plaintiff talks about all the rampant and systematic fraud that was so material, so significant, that the outcome of the election was affected. Hope you understand now why we're not going live on YouTube. <laughs> um, the complaint like I said at the beginning, was filed November 23rd, so just 20 days after the election. Pretty good work, Matt, because uh, it's really hard to put together something of this nature in that sense and do so in less than three weeks. Um, and uh, if you look at paragraph 29 of his complaint, which hopefully I will have available for you uh, later today, we're hoping to get some documents uh, directly from Matt uh, and be able to share those on our website as well. Uh, but even if he doesn't, I will be posting the decision from the Court of Appeals, which um, uses quotes from different pieces of his brief, uh, of his complaint, I should say, and that includes what he said in his uh, paragraph number 29. The relief requested. So the plaintiff requested, number one, to have a protective order to preserve all the evidence, because as of many of you know, uh, the various levels of government were out there trying to delete files and get rid of evidence, uh, claiming that they could do that, that they didn't need to have it, that they're only required to keep certain things and only for a certain period of time, et cetera, et cetera. This was less than three weeks after the election, ladies and gentlemen. He was asking for the court to preserve, for an order, to preserve all the evidence. Um, also, he was asking the court to provide him access to all the data so that they could obtain images of um, essentially all the electronic files, that they would be able to have an accurate representation of the entirety of the electronic case file, if you will, uh, for um, the, the votes. He also was asking that the court order that he be allowed to conduct an independent audit uh, I don't believe that he was asking for the, you know, that the plaintiff was asking that he himself, but rather that he would be able to obtain a professional audit done by an independent auditor um, who's not named in the lawsuit, but I, I could be mistaken on that. Either way, he was requesting that he be allowed to conduct an independent audit. All right. So what happened then? Well, then there was a motion for summary disposition. Antrim County and the newly added defendant, Michigan Secretary of State, both filed motions for summary disposition, a motion for summary disposition. Plaintiff opposed it, fought against it, but the trial court granted that motion. The plaintiff appealed to the Michigan Court of Appeals. Um, <laughs> and let me just cut to the chase of what happened. The Michigan Court of Appeals essentially said throughout this whole analysis, that although the trial court got the legal analysis plain wrong, the end result was 
correct according to them. So they just affirmed the trial court's dismissal of the plaintiff's case. So let me back up, right? Summary disposition. What the heck is that? You might be asking yourself. Now, I'll tell you what, if you even went to your first year of law school uh, and didn't even graduate from law school, that first year you were inundated with the federal rules of civil procedure. And depending on the, the state you went to law school in, uh, your state rules of civil procedure. And uh, tell you what, you know terms like subject matter jurisdiction, and <laughs> you know um, all kinds of, of terms that lead to the dismissal of a case. So in Michigan, what Matt used, what the plaintiff was using, was MCR, Michigan Court Rule, 2.116. And I have shared the Michigan Court Rules a few different times in our Freedom Fighting Tools section uh, segments, but um, I may end up sharing it again. But at any rate, you can also do a Google search and you'll find Michigan Court Rules fairly easily that way. So Michigan Court Rule 2.116, the whole rule is about summary disposition motions. It breaks things down. If you look at section C, it talks about the different kinds. Now, there are 10 different kinds of uh, motions for summary disposition. Now, we're not going to talk about all 10. We're really not going to talk about uh, too much of any of them individually. But interestingly enough, Matt, uh, in Matt's case, now these aren't things that Matt raised, but the government raised C4, C8, and C10 as their um, mechanisms for asking the court to dismiss this case. C4, telling uh, the court they have to dismiss the case because the court lacks subject matter jurisdiction. If you've heard anything about my Allegan County Election Day case, my own, yes, my very own case, the government, my motion to dismiss started with uh, C4, subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, C8, they claim that Matt failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. So funny thing is, my Allegan County Election Day case also contained my motion to dismiss, uh, which hammered on the fact that the state failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Now, Matt's case that we're talking about here is a civil case, and he is the plaintiff suing the government. Of course, in my case, um, it is a criminal case, and it is the government pursuing and filing these cases against me. But um, it's funny how uh, the government doesn't seem to think these kinds of rules apply to them uh, when somebody tries to claim that they don't have a claim upon which relief can be granted, but uh, the government can turn around and try to use these against uh, an individual, a citizen, for trying to assert their rights and trying to ensure institutional integrity so we can maintain our constitutional republic. At any rate, moving on, C10 is where there is no genuine issue of material fact and the moving party, the person requesting this motion, is entitled to judgment as a matter of law, meaning all the facts don't matter. If there are any factual disputes, the facts um, that are disputed don't matter. They're irrelevant to the determination of the case in general. But um, certainly the, um, sorry, give me one second, guys.
All right. For those of you who homeschool, you might understand uh, that uh, I just had to clear up a slight uh, noise distraction interruption in my background. So sorry about that. But um, at any rate, so uh, funny thing is in my case against, uh, well, where the Allegan County uh, is, is deciding to uh, bring suit, bring a criminal case against me for election day issues. Uh, my motion to dismiss, my motion for summary disposition also included uh, 2.116C10 portion because I'm entitled to judgment as a matter of law. Why? Well, you can't prosecute someone for trespassing when they are on property, government owned nonetheless, that is open to the general public. But that is neither here nor there. Just wanted you guys to see some of the overlapping considerations and thoughts uh, that go into things. So, um, all right, future videos. <laughs> this topic is, I'd, I've talked about it somewhat in terms of my case and now just a teeny bit in terms of this case, but really to do it justice to empower you to fight back using the tools that the government seems to think it has plenty in its disposal to use against you. I think I need to go into this more. So we will be doing uh, at least one, if not more future videos, further explaining motions for summary disposition. Like I said, a very important tool in fighting back against government overreach and our rights being infringed. So, Stay tuned for that. Uh, it's going to be, well, legalese and a bunch of stuff that, you know, might otherwise put you to sleep, but hopefully I'll have enough enthusiasm in the discussion and uh, interesting pictures and graphics and bullet points and all kinds of things that it'll keep your mind entertained and focused enough to be able to benefit from having that information. But that's for a future day. All right. So... <laughs> What about the thought of uncovering systematic election fraud not being meaningful by itself? Let's ponder that for a minute. This court, darn near at the beginning of this uh, opinion, the Michigan Court of Appeals we're talking about, at page four, footnote two, said that we question whether the relief requested by plaintiff is meaningful because the evidence that plaintiff seeks to gather would only be useful if an avenue remained open for him to challenge the election results. What does that mean? The court is saying that uh, the plaintiff, uh, even if he had all the proof in the world that there was huge and systematic election fraud, it doesn't matter because there's no way that he could challenge the election results. Now, keep in mind, yes, we are in 2022 at this point, but he filed this case less than three weeks after the election. OK, so there hadn't been an inauguration or, you know, the Electoral College hadn't gone and done its thing. Right. He filed this timely. Regardless, okay, regardless of whether there's the ability to challenge the 2020 election results, I mean, we're basically halfway through the term. What does that mean? And that's, mind you, just for the presidential term. There were terms on there, like, say, for example, uh, state uh, and U.S. representatives. Those are two-year terms. 
other offices uh, at times are only two-year terms. So we're essentially talking about an entire term that was fraudulently filled, potentially fraudulently, fraudulently filled. That seems like a big issue. What the Michigan Court of Appeals is saying, in a footnote nonetheless, is that uncovering proof, uncovering evidence of systematic election fraud in our most recent general election would be meaningless because we can't just undo what happened anyway. So no big deal. It's done. What's done is done. Let's just move on. Seriously? Seriously. I just, there's something wrong there. All right. <laughs> um, I find it interesting and wanted to bring this in because I couldn't help myself. The Michigan Court of Appeals in this decision, they said what they said in that footnote. And then later on, on page six, they recognize that one of the statutes involved, Michigan, um, Michigan statutes, MCL 168.31A, it explicitly states that an audit conducted under this section is not a recount and does not change any certified election results. So wait a second, the state law talking about audits and laying out the audit procedure says that there might already be certified election results and the audit itself doesn't challenge the certified election results. To me, it seems like they're saying those are two different things and one can happen with the other or because of the other, but one meaning the audit and the results obtained in that audit have meaning and purpose in and of themselves and can stand alone. You don't have to simply try to overturn or change certified election, election results um, when requesting an audit. You can just simply request the audit because you want to uncover the truth about what happened. Apparently the truth is meaningless to the Michigan Court of Appeals. All right, so some initial procedural issues that were presented. The Antrim County um, defendant uh, and Michigan Secretary of State, they argued that the Michigan Court of Appeals did not have jurisdiction to hear the appeal, not the original case, but that the, the Court of Appeals did not have jurisdiction to hear the appeal because the trial court's order dismissing the case was somehow not a final order. Now, the order Matt appealed was an order that dismissed his case in entirety, but they're saying that was not a final order that disposed of the whole case. Uh, well, Michigan Court of Appeals got something right here, and they disagreed with uh, the defendants, and they said that, yes, plaintiff can appeal to the Michigan Court of Appeals on this issue. Now, Antrim County and the Michigan Secretary of State also argued that the plaintiff's claims were moot. So the court was not allowed to handle the case because uh, it no longer was relevant, essentially. The Michigan Court of Appeals also disagreed on this point and stated that Michigan's, excuse me, that plaintiff's claims were not moot, meaning his claims were timely when filed and they were still timely now. Okay, so constitutional and statutory interpretation. 
the court tells us, this is all the court's analysis, that the primary purpose of the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court in interpreting constitutional provisions is to ascertain the purpose and intent as expressed in the constitutional provision in question. The court also says that interpretation given by the court should be one that is most obvious to common understanding and one that reasonable minds of the great mass of the people themselves would give it. So when you're saying this is what a constitutional provision means, then you're literally saying, well, this is what would be most commonly understood by these words. This is what most reasonable people, this is what the general public would think this means. That's how they're supposed to interpret the Constitution. After all, our Constitution is put into place or revised, amended by we the people, not by government officials, by we the people, because we have a constitutional republic. We retain the ultimate sovereignty and ultimate authority. Okay. So the court, again, the Michigan Court of Appeals, in this case, stated that the Michigan Supreme Court has already reminded us that when the language of a constitutional provision is unambiguous, resorting to extrinsic evidence is prohibited. So if the language is pretty darn clear what is meant in the Constitution, then you can't go looking at other things to explain that very language. Uh, or I could have just gone with my wording that I already had, which was that this means the court must read the plain language of the Constitution and leave it at that. So the Michigan Court of Appeals further said that the purpose of statutory interpretation, so when they're interpreting state laws, is to give effect to the intent of the legislature, because it is usually the legislature that puts laws into effect. Although in Michigan, we do have a lot of different uh, initiative petitions that circulate, which end up leading to uh, laws being passed that are essentially brought forth and voted in by the people directly. But at any rate, the court continues to say that if a statute, if a state law is unambiguous, if it's clear, it must be enforced as it's written and no interpretation is allowed. Okay, so when the court starts focusing on Michigan Court Rule 2.116C8, that's one of those uh, parts of the motion to dismiss where um, we're saying that uh, the plaintiff failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. The court here, the Michigan Court of Appeals, explains that these MCR 2.116 C8 motion challenges, uh, that these motions challenge the legal sufficiency of the claim made by plaintiff. So it's legally insufficient. And the court explains that this is based on factual allegations in the complaint. So what essentially the plaintiff wrote happened in the complaint. Also, this is a key point here, all allegations in the complaint, anything that the plaintiff alleged 
happened on election day must be accepted as true by the trial court. When they're deciding whether or not to throw this case out, they have to look at the complaint and assume that every single thing in the complaint is true. All the allegations of fraud. And also important to note that this Michigan Court of Appeals acknowledged that a court, a trial court, can only grant this motion to dismiss when the claim in the complaint is so clearly unenforceable that no factual development could possibly justify recovery. So in other words, in this case, and the court explains this later, uh, that the plaintiff made some, according to them, general allegations of fraud and um, abuse of power and things like that, right? And he was specifically, he knew what to ask for. He was asking for very specific things. And then he also had some general discovery requests and he was going to make depositions or take depositions rather of various witnesses, right? So he was going to essentially get testimony ahead of time from different people within the government. So he was going to get all this evidence to show exactly why the court must find that the allegations are true. And what this is saying is the court can only dismiss a case when the plaintiff alleges something that no matter what kind of facts come out, what he's saying just isn't something that you can get relief for. Okay, so that doesn't seem right here. Um, I can't see my own screen. Um, okay, so the plaintiff argues that, so this is in terms of understanding, is Matt's claim, is the plaintiff's claim legally sufficient or not? Is there something that he's saying that the court would be able to provide some sort of relief? They'd be able to give, you know, issue an order that would fix the situation. Well, the plaintiff claims that the Michigan Constitution, Article 1, excuse me, Article 2, Section 41H allows him to have a full and independent forensic audit of the election. So the court explains what this part of the constitution says. This is the state constitution of Michigan. A lot of other constitutions uh, around the country have similar types of provisions, but this language is specific to the Michigan constitution. And it says every citizen in the United States uh, of the United States, who is a, a, an elector qualified to vote in Michigan, shall have the right to have the results of statewide elections audited in a manner prescribed by law to ensure the accuracy and integrity of elections. All rights set forth in this subsection shall be self-executing, meaning uh, you don't have to use this part of the Constitution with some other part of the Constitution in order to get your audit. You are just entitled to get an audit. This subsection shall be liberally construed in favor of voters' rights. Pretty sure those are the rights that the plaintiff in this case is trying to protect. 
in order to effectuate its purposes. Nothing contained in this subsection shall prevent the legislature from expanding voters' rights beyond what is provided herein. Okay, so about this, this section that I think is very clear, the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled five days ago that that part of the Constitution does not permit an audit to be performed in the manner dictated by an individual voter, but rather in the manner dictated by state law. Okay, well, let me go back and look. So they're saying, uh, let's see, where does it say that? Um, every voter, every, you know, registered voter in Michigan shall have the right to have the results of the statewide election audited in such a manner as prescribed by law. Okay, that seems to make sense so far, right? You can't, as a plaintiff, just come in there as a voter and say, I want to audit these results and I want to do it this way, this way, this way, this way. And and that the government just has to bend over backwards and go, okay, seems to make sense so far, right? But what does that state law actually say? So the court points out that the state law that tells the manner that these audits are going to happen, the state says this. In MCL 168.31a, the legislature said, the Secretary of State shall prescribe the, the procedures for election audits. Wait, what? Hold on, let's pause on that for just a second. The Constitution says that the manner of doing the audits has to be laid out and specified in state law by the legislature. So the legislature has to tell us the manner of how audits will proceed. But when the legislature went to go and do that, they said, well, nah, we'll let the Secretary of State tell us how we're going to proceed for election audits. And uh, that um, authority they're giving the Secretary of State includes uh, reviewing documents, ballots, and procedures used during an election as required in Article 4, Section 2 of the state constitution. So they're referencing, we know, as a legislature, we know that we have to lay out how audits will take place. And so in order to follow our duty to tell you the manner that audits will take place, we are going to tell you that somebody else gets to make that decision. Yeah. Further, the state law says the secretary of state and county clerks shall conduct election audits, including statewide election audits, as set forth in the procedures that the secretary of state gets to decide on. The Secretary of State shall train and certify election clerks and their staffs for the purpose of conducting election audits of precincts randomly selected by the Secretary of State in their counties. And the Secretary of State shall supervise each county clerk in the performance of election audits conducted. What does that mean? Well, it means that according... <laughs> According to uh, the Michigan Court of Appeals and the state legislature in their infinite wisdom, this means that voters in Michigan may request an audit of elections that are run by the Secretary of State, 
but the secretary of state who runs the elections gets to choose how to run the audit, choose what aspects, documents, ballots, et cetera, are audited. The secretary of state gets to train the clerks and staff to conduct the audit. And finally, that the secretary of states gets to supervise the audit and how it's done. So in other words, the court said, voters in Michigan may request an audit of elections run by the secretary of state, but the secretary of state does the audit of its own results. Um, sorry, I'm gonna, uh, let's see, break here for just a second. I mean, I don't know if my face says it any better, but So let's go back. My emoji says it. I've never used an emoji in a constitutional law presentation before, but couldn't help it on this one. So if that whole thing doesn't seem quite right to you, you're right. We have to consider another part of the Constitution. Same article, Article 2. Same section, Section 4. Article two, mind you, is the entire article in uh, in um, the Michigan Constitution, the entire second article is all about elections. Article two, section four, subsection two says that, except as otherwise provided in this constitution, well, like in subsection one that we just talked about, or in the Constitution or laws of the United States, the legislature shall enact laws to regulate the time, place, and manner of all nominations and elections, to preserve the purity of elections, to preserve the secrecy of the ballot, to guard against abuses of the elective franchise, and to provide for a system of voter registration and absentee voting. So the legislature has to make laws that preserve the purity of elections and guard against abuses. And that's saying, but first let's consider what happens anywhere else in this constitution. Namely, let's remember what was said literally in the paragraph just before this one that gave the voter the right to audit an election. All right, when we think about this, um, there's we have a question on Facebook right now. Uh, isn't there something that states that laws should be clear and easy to understand? Yes. Uh, in fact, Lori, if you don't mind copying and pasting that into our topics for episodes, I think there's enough there that we need to make that its own topic for an episode. The short answer mark on Facebook is yes. Um, there is something that states that. Uh, there's a lot of different case precedent. There's common sense. There's the fact that we have a constitutional republic, meaning Article 4, Section 4 of our U.S. Constitution uh, guarantees to us a Republican form of government. And a Republican form of government is one where we, the people, elect uh, officials to represent us and, and run the day-to-day -day operations of government, but we retain the ultimate control and authority. We retain sovereignty. 
So if we, the people are supposed to be the ones uh, in charge, then there isn't supposed to be some sort of uh, small group of individuals who get to make laws that only they understand. A lot of attorneys will tell people, well, you just don't understand the law because you're not a lawyer. Well, quite frankly, the legislature doesn't understand the laws. Did you know they don't even write them? That's That was something I was changing in uh, the Restore Freedom Initiative constitutional amendment petition that I drafted in 2020. <laughs> it took off the legislative council and it put the actual responsibilities of legislating actually firmly uh, on the plate of the legislators. So they had to, I don't know, read the laws before they voted on them, that they had to be the ones to write them if they were the ones supposedly sponsoring these laws. Anyway, that's a whole other tangent, something that we will do a video on. So uh, back to what we're doing today. Um, all right. So in this concept, which I'm just going to back up to make sure I don't lose anybody, um, we're talking about this concept that the legislature is responsible because the Constitution says so. The legislature has to enact laws to preserve the purity of elections and guard against abuses of the election process. The Court of Appeals tells us that the Michigan Supreme Court has already decided that this purity of elections clause includes two pieces. One, that the constitutional authority to enact laws to preserve the purity of elections resides in the legislature. I don't know about you, but I think we're saying a lot of words without really applying them. The Court of Appeals is saying that this first one, it's the legislature that gets to uh, enact the laws to preserve the purity of elections. I would think since the Michigan uh, Constitution um, part that allows the audit to take place, since it says right in that part of the Constitution, it's to preserve the purity and integrity of elections, that that means the legislature and not somebody else they get delegate to, like the Secretary of State, who's in a totally different branch, that the legislature is the one that is supposed to enact the laws to preserve the purity of elections. They're the ones that are supposed to uh, explain what the procedures would be to ensure the integrity, to be able to do an audit. They just don't apply that. Second, this is the Michigan Supreme or Court of Appeals reminding us that the Michigan Supreme Court has already said that any law enacted by the legislature which adversely affects the purity of elections is constitutionally infirm. Say what? Any law that is put into place in Michigan that does not ensure the purity of elections is unconstitutional from the word go. It cannot be enforced. They already said that. The Michigan Supreme Court said that and the Michigan Court of Appeals is acknowledging that. But let's think about common sense. A voter's constitutionally guaranteed right to request an audit of elections run by the Secretary of State this is common sense telling us that when you have a constitutionally guaranteed right to request an audit of elections run by the Secretary of State, 
That right is not honored when the person or department alleged to commit the fraud or gross errors is the same person controlling virtually every aspect of the audit. Again, the Secretary of State gets to choose how to run the audit, to choose what aspects are audited, to train the county clerks and staff to conduct the audit, and the Secretary of State gets to supervise the audit. But even though the court already laid out what the Michigan Supreme Court has told us about these parts of the Constitution, and common sense jumps in to indicate what we just discussed. The Michigan Supreme Court, excuse me, the Michigan Court of Appeals in this case tells us that even though the plaintiff requested an audit per his right to do so in the Michigan Constitution, and he clearly stated that this situation necessitated an independent audit, which plain common sense and it's, it's plain common sense, um, and is necessary to preserve the purity of elections. The Court of Appeals then says, well, he did not expressly state that Michigan's election audit law, MCL 168.31a's method of auditing, violated the constitutional requirement per for preserving the purity of elections. He didn't say the sentence in that particular manner. In other words, plaintiff cited all the correct laws and constitutional provisions. The very ones that the Court of Appeals is talking about are already brought up in Matt's uh, complaint that he filed in November of 2020. So he cited all the correct laws, all the correct constitutional provisions, According to the court, I haven't even read his complaint, so this isn't me saying this. This is what the Court of Appeals is saying. He cited all the correct um, laws. He clearly stated the relief he was requesting from the court. He clearly stated the facts that supported what he was requesting. He didn't say the exact words. He didn't say it in the exact way that they wanted him to. So even though the trial court used all the wrong words themselves, remember at the very beginning, I told you that the court of appeals said that the trial court got the correct result, but they analyzed the case entirely wrong. They got there the wrong way. So even though the trial court used all the wrong words, the plaintiff's whole case must in fact be dismissed. This is what the court said, word for word. Plaintiff failed to plead these claims in his complaint, so we will not address his arguments on appeal concerning the constitutionality of MCL 168.31a and whether the audit was constitutionally sufficient. We won't address whether the audit was constitutionally sufficient. So they're saying, Oh, the audit might very well be constitutionally insufficient that the Secretary of State did, but that doesn't matter. So, again, plaintiff did cite 168.861 in his complaint. This is a different statute, but it's part of the same uh, Michigan election law. 
He argued this law allowed him to file a quo warranto claim to obtain an independent audit. I should probably do a video on that. In fact, Lori, uh, if you could add that to our list of topics we need to do separate episodes on. Uh, there's there's some cases, there's some things happening actually in 83 of the 83 Michigan counties. There is um, a process being started in a different aspect on quo warranto claims being uh, pursued for various reasons, all because of uh, the fraud, the government overreach, um, all kinds of things that have been happening in the last two years. So we'll talk about what that really is later. But he did bring up this other statute and said, hey, this other statute allows me to get this independent audit. So the Court of Appeals points out that the statute Matt talks about here, 168.861, provides that for fraudulent or illegal voting or tampering with the ballots or ballot boxes before recount by the Board of County Canvassers, the remedy by quo warranto shall remain in full force together with other remedies now existing. So the fact that Matt um, cited other ways that, that the court is supposed to allow him to um, take this action and do something about election fraud. Uh, this particular statute says, hey, you can do all those and you can uh, get something done this way too, through a quo warranto claim because there was fraudulent voting or tampering with the ballots. Even though that's exactly the wording of the statute, the Court of Appeals held that this very law does not allow plaintiff to file a quo warranto claim because, well, basically they didn't really say, but they were kind of insinuating it's because he's an individual in Michigan. Uh, he's just a, a person. And as just some individual person, this law doesn't give him the right to go file a quo warranto claim. The thing is, and this will come out and be discussed a lot more in a video where we're talking about quo warranto claims on their own, but quo warranto claims are basically where an individual person is going to the court or starting with the prosecutor sometimes, depending on the situation, but they're going to the courts and they're saying, hey, listen, uh, we need you to let uh, me, an individual or a group of indivi individuals, uh, to file a case uh, against um, a certain government official because the government official is either not supposed to be in office, they got there fraudulently, or they're not doing their job correctly, they're doing it fraudulently, but somebody needs to intervene. And it's it's we the people, it's me and you know my, my two neighbors, we're filing this, or it's you know me and my husband, or whatever the case is, right? That's literally what a quo warranto is. It is the people bringing an action against the government Yet the Court of Appeals said that even though this state law specifically gives the people a quo warranto claim for election fraud issues, somehow they came to the conclusion that this very law does not allow him to file one of those claims. For those of you listening, for the second time ever in the thousands of hours of constitutional videos that I have done. 
I'm now using an emoji. This one is the face palm emoji because no other emoji can properly depict how on earth we are supposed to feel or think about what the heck the Court of Appeals was thinking when it made that decision. Um, before I move on, I'm just going to take a quick peek because it looks like we had a bunch of comments. Um, exactly. So Lorna Cobb on Facebook, her question is, how do we know it will be worthwhile to vote in the midterm election if the whole fraud of 2020 has not been resolved? Exactly. And that's why their statement at the beginning on page four and footnote two about the fact that, well, you know, if he can't challenge the election results from 2020, then there's no point in letting him compile all this evidence that shows there was huge statewide systematic fraud. Uh, yeah. So we can find out ways that it happened, what exactly happened and ensure that it doesn't happen again. But, you know, that's the court for us. Um Okay, so Lori, you were asking about um, uh, what other thing to put on the episode sh sheet. That would be the quo warento, the topic of doing a quo warento claim and what that means and how people can use it. And quite frankly, how the average Joe should be using it. Kind of funny is uh, it is an average guy named Joe that is working on Quo Warrento claims in 83 counties in Michigan. That's kind of ironic. Anyway, um, okay, uh, let's see. Is the Court of Appeals placed in? Are they essentially, so uh, Douglas on Facebook is asking, uh, is the Court of Appeals, are those judges, are they um, appointed or are they voted in? Uh, are they elect elected? They are elected. Now, um, initially, they may be appointed if there's a vacancy created. Oftentimes, judges will strategize and they'll make sure to uh, retire or move on or whatever. Um, when the um, uh, the governor in, in power at the time is uh, of their own political party. So that, that allows the governor to appoint someone to fill the remainder of the term. And even if it's a short remainder, that judge then becomes the incumbent on the next ballot. So if anybody wants to, um, you know, run, then even though the other person hasn't been judged for very long and they were never elected by the people, that's the impression the voters get when they go to the polls and they see, oh, this judge, you know, Joe Smith judge of Court of Appeals, uh, he's an incumbent. He's been around. He knows what he's doing. And so they typically vote for the incumbent. Um, Okay, so I don't think I've ever made one of these presentations with so many slides before, but uh, here we go. All right, among other things, again, I haven't even had access to his complaint yet. So I'm just taking the word of the Court of Appeals on what Matt is saying, okay? But among other things, in the plaintiff's complaint, he questioned, this is in paragraph 29, which this paragraph is copied in full in the um, uh, the Court of Appeals decision. It is He's questioning whether or if 10 distinct fraudulent acts were committed. 
He's saying this might've happened. This might've happened. This might've happened. Did they, you know, he's saying whether I want to know whether these happened and he's asking for discovery to ascertain which of those allegations are true. And discovery wasn't done yet because the depositions hadn't been completed yet. And although, um, again, I don't know all the procedural history, but the court of appeals said, well, um, the plaintiff missed his deadline. The, the discovery deadline was already done. The court of appeals also pointed out that the trial court was going to let Matt do depositions of the government officials afterwards yet. He hadn't totally passed the deadline. For whatever reason, the court uh, essentially reopened discovery to allow him to complete those depositions and get that testimony so he could fine tune what his allegations were and uh, understand maybe some are true and some are not. So he can narrow the claims down before trial. That is exactly the purpose of discovery. Anyway, uh, he also, the plaintiff clearly stated, clearly in paragraph 30, defendant Antrim County initially registered phantom voters for presidential candidate Joe Biden. And, um, well, I'm... I was uh, <clears throat> making it more understandable for you, and I didn't take out this word, but he he said, basically, listen, Antrim County registered phantom voters for president uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden, and Dominion Machines altered and switched votes for him, and I want to know why, why those two things happened. That's what he said in paragraph 30. He didn't say he wanted to know if those things happened. He said he wanted to know why those things happened. I don't know how much clearer those allegations could be. There was fraud. There were phantom votes put in and there were machines that switched votes for another candidate. All right. Um, <clears throat> so... Plaintiff's quo rento claim under MCL 600.4545. So another quo rento claim, but it's a different law that gives him the right to do this. So the Michigan Court of Appeals about this statute, they recognize that that very state law, MCL 600.4545, uh, provides for an action in the nature of quo rento whenever it appears that material fraud or error has been committed at any election. I know there's a lot of legal lingo in there, but I think you guys can understand that this is the Court of Appeals fully acknowledging this particular state law allows the plaintiff in this case to file this claim to challenge the election to get information at the least, to get an audit. If it appears material fraud or error has been committed, if it appears, he doesn't have to prove it. And that uh, this is the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals also said that material fraud or error, according to this state law, means fraud or error that might have affected the outcome of the election. I don't know about you, but if we're putting in phantom voters for a candidate and then we're utilizing machines that are intentionally uh, switching and manipulating votes from one candidate to another, that tells me the results of the outcome were definitely affected. 
However, the Michigan Court of Appeals concluded, quote, there are no allegations in the complaint to support that the purported irregularities in Antrim County might have affected the outcome of the presidential election as the cited case law clearly requires. First of all, you guys know I cannot stand talking about case precedent as case law because the judicial branch is not allowed to make laws. At any rate, they're saying his allegations aren't strong enough. There's not enough proof that these irregularities affected the outcome of the election. But they're forgetting that the language of the law they're talking about says whenever it appears that the there's material fraud that has been committed and that it might have affected the outcome, I don't understand how they can say votes that are phantom by phantom voters and votes that are switched by the machine, by some algorithm in the machine, uh, that having those two things alone, how those two things don't allege sufficiently that the outcome of the election might have been different. He doesn't have to prove that it would have been different, just that it might have been different. But they said there was nothing good enough in his complaint that said that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I did not select another emoji, but instead of giving you my own contorted face to try to figure out what in the world is wrong with the brains of these three people that are serving in an appellate court with a constitutional oath to uphold and support and defend the U.S. and Michigan constitutions, I don't even know what to say. This graphic that I found, this picture, quite frankly, says it best. How do you possibly react to a court of appeals decision like that? All right, we're not done though, unfortunately. The um, plaintiff also had an equal protection claim and it's been worded, I don't know, because again, I didn't read his complaint. I don't know if he worded it this way or not, but uh, it seems that he worded it um, in one way, but I've heard it kind of worded another way. An equal protection claim for election fraud stems from the fact that if you allow fraud to happen, if you allow votes to be counted that are illegal, and you allow votes that were properly made to be switched to another candidate or another result, then you are diluting the votes of the people who had the legal right to place their votes. So therefore, you're not providing equal protection of the right to vote when you include illegal votes. Anyway, regardless of that, that doesn't, whether he said it that way or not, doesn't exactly change what the court is saying here. About his equal protection claim, the Michigan Court of Appeals said that the purpose of, of the Equal Protection Guarantee is to secure every person against intentional discrimination by improper execution of an official's job duties. So the Secretary of State was administering um, elections in a way that even though they're supposed to administer elections, they were doing so in a way that was improper and it... Um, 
created a, a discrimination, a disadvantage to voters um, because of what they did wrong. So then the Court of Appeals said that the plaintiff made generalized assertions to the trial court that election fraud occurred and that he should be provided with discovery in order to determine the extent of the fraud. So he didn't state his claim the right way. That's what they're saying. That he only made generalized claims of fraud and he wanted the court to allow him to, to collect evidence to narrow down and be more specific with the equal protection arguments essentially before they get to trial. And discovery was not over, depositions were not done, but yet somehow the Court of Appeals said, well, his claims were too general, so yeah, no. He didn't state things the right way. So what about adding the right words? What if, um, you know, Matt said, okay, you want me to word things a certain way. I'll go ahead. I'll change my, my wording. This is called amending the complaint. Um, MCR 2.116. Remember, that's the motion to dismiss, the motion for summary disposition rule that got the case thrown out in the trial court. There's a part of that rule that comes after uh, the other pieces we talked about. And it says, okay, yeah, you can make these motions, uh, but if, if the government is going to try to get Matt's case thrown out because uh, they claim it, his claim is legally insufficient, first, this court rule requires the trial court to give the parties an opportunity to amend their pleadings pursuant to MCR 2.118. So the trial court must, no choice, must give the plaintiff the chance to reword the complaint if the grounds for summary disposition are based on 2.116 C8, which was one of the grounds raised by the government at the trial court level. It was one of the three grounds uh, upon which the trial court granted the motion for summary disposition. And it is the sole ground of that rule that uh, the Michigan Court of Appeals is affirming the dismissal of the case. So the trial court has to allow him to amend his complaint in this situation unless the evidence in front of the judge at that time showed that amending his complaint is not justified. Okay, well, why wouldn't it be justified? Well, the court recognizes that leave to amend or getting permission for, from the court to amend your complaint should only be denied when there are very specific articulated reasons such as undue delay, bad faith, um, repeated failures to cure other defects or futility, that it would be futile. So let's... Um, Let's think about this. The court has to allow the plaintiff to amend his complaint unless the Secretary of State in Antrim County were able to very specifically identify 
ways that he was um, having undue delay. Well, how was he supposed to have his complaint modified appropriately uh, based on the new evidence if the new evidence wasn't completely disclosed to him yet? So it can't be undue delay. Uh, did he have bad faith? I don't even think there was an allegation that he had bad faith. Um, and what about repeated failures to cure by amendments previously allowed? He wasn't ever asking for an amendment before this, let alone was he allowed to amend his complaint before this. Um, so he didn't fail to cure any prior um, defects. So that's not applicable. What about whether it's futile? Again, the court doesn't really explain this, but basically the only thing that seems to be on, on point with this is that footnote we talked about on page four, footnote two, where the court at the very beginning says, well, you know, the plaintiff is asking for all this evidence of systematic election fraud, but there's no point to getting that um, evidence because he can't challenge the 2020 election results at this point. It's too late. So it's futile to get that information. They're totally forgetting about all the other reasons why we need to be able to complete the audit and, um, and have that information to have that proof. Why would the, why would the people have enacted that part of the constitution if the government could just defeat it defeat the whole purpose of the audit by just dragging their feet and not providing all the information in time. That makes no sense to me. Okay, so the court then said that allowing the plaintiff to amend his complaint would have prejudicial effect on the defendants. Why? Well, the proposed amendment that Matt filed, I believe it was May 8th of 2021, his proposed amended complaint, number one, added new factual allegations. That's what the Court of Appeals said. Number two, it added new theories of liability, new legal reasons why uh, the defendants were wrong. And number three, it added new defendants in general. Keeping in mind, uh, the first side to add defendants without the permission of the other side was actually the defendants. The Secretary of State intervened, butted in, and said, hey, we should be able to participate as a party in this case. Not as an amicus, but as a party. And uh, the, the plaintiff objected, and the court overruled and, and let the... Um, um, Secretary of State come in as a defendant in this case. But Matt was trying to add in several new defendants, which the Court of Appeals talks about. Um, let's see. Um, so Antrim County, the initial defendant, Jocelyn Benson in her individual capacity and capacity as Secretary of State. Well, those are justified because she's the one that butted in in the first place. Um, the person who, um, was the Michigan director of elections. Okay. That makes sense. Especially as he was given some of the information as the case has gone on. Uh, the person who was the clerk of Antrim County, um, uh, consultation, um, M Miller consultations and elections Inc, uh, who was involved, I guess, with the machines and the township central Lake township. 
one of the townships within Antrim County. So really there's no, not a whole lot of new, if anything, it might just be uh, the private company that um, was included that really wouldn't have had notice of this lawsuit or, or knowing what's going on. But all the other individuals are people that are in government that had direct involvement in this uh, election, administering the election and possibly the audit itself. Um, okay, so um, in the discussion though, in this, in this decision that the Court of Appeals came out with, the discussion mainly revolved around uh, that there wouldn't be enough notice given to the new defendants to be fair. That basically this case started November of 2020. It wasn't until May of 2021 that uh, Matt was trying to add in these new defendants. And the fact that trial was scheduled for the very next month wouldn't have given them enough time to um, participate. That's what the Michigan Court of Appeals said. So my suggestion, I guess before we move on from that, my suggestion, and again, I didn't read everything. I'm just, even if you take what the Court of Appeals said as the truth, even if you take their own reasons for dismissing his claim as true, I don't get why we wouldn't just say, you know what, we'll accept an amended complaint but you have to take out some of these new defendants or maybe just this one new defendant or worst case scenario, you can't add any new defendants, but you can do the rewording of, uh, of your claim that we were basically saying you needed to do. We'll allow you to do that. I'm sure if the court had allowed him to file an amended complaint that complied with their requirements that he reword things, he would have done so. But anyway, they didn't give him that opportunity. They just said, nope, it's not fair. Can't do it. Even though the court rule says you have to, didn't let him. So what is the final recap of this Michigan Court of Appeals newest decision about election integrity? Hang on, because this is a lot. This is the newest recap, okay? If you are not looking at your screen, if you are merely listening, this is something you need to see. So, here's the recap. All right, for those of you who can't see your screen, it's too small, or you're outside and your screen's too dark, the final recap, is the emoji who's thinking, what the heck is the court doing? Followed by the face palm emoji. Followed by the picture of a woman just throwing her hands up in the air and her eyes large in bewilderment going, what on earth? I have no idea. I don't even have words. That is the recap of what the Michigan Court of Appeals did just five days ago as they were ruling on Michigan elections and election integrity, and how this case, how this fraud that they're not denying happened, uh, impacts the entire nation. All right, so 
Uh, I did go much longer than I wanted to, but um, hopefully you guys are able to see why we um, went over, why we needed to discuss those things, and um, <clears throat> why I ended up using emojis this time. So I do plan to um, take a lot of this information and give you some um, resources that tie into this whole topic for tomorrow's uh, Wednesday's way to get involved. And um, Thursday, we normally do the constitutional segment recap, where I also will recap any statutes or court rules we went over. But I'm I'm going to take the conversation, the 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 legal recap, back a little bit and um, include some things that we didn't necessarily go over today, but would be bigger, um, better understood in that bigger, broader, you know, um, overview presentation that Thursday's recap will be. So make sure to uh, tune in on Thursday for that. And um, I will try to make sure those are aired at noon as well on those days. Um, and then Friday, we have Friday's Freedom Fighting Tools, and my goal has been to provide three every week. I have quite a bit more than that because they relate to this topic, and they certainly relate to the way to get involved challenge of the week. Uh, so make sure to tune in on Friday to get those as well. And they're all free. It's not like Black's Law Dictionary when I was uh, asking you guys to buy a copy of that so you had it at your fingertips. Um, these are all links, uh, government links. So at any rate, I hope you found all this information useful. Oh, and we will definitely still have our segment on the Restore Freedom Goodie of the Week, uh, as well as the um, uh, biblical insight on this topic. Uh, we won't forget those, but I just didn't mention those yet. So uh, without any further ado, I really appreciate all of you staying tuned today, asking questions, uh, having conversation. I encourage you to um, join us on uh, these other platforms regularly because there will be days where we have topics like this that will probably get us put in some serious time out if we air them on YouTube. So um Oh, I guess Lori's telling me there's a question. Sorry. Um, if there's 25 judges in the appeals court system, then who picked the three judges? Oh, who picked these three judges to decide this case? Okay. That's the question being asked uh, by Douglas on Facebook. I, off the top of my head, I don't know how that works, but I, I believe there's some sort of system or procedure that's fairly automized, um, uh, you know, randomized. It's not somebody was sitting there going, hmm, I think this one should be decided by you and you and you. I think it's a little bit more, I think there's actually some integrity to how the three judges are selected. Um, I just don't remember the process where that happens. So uh, sorry, I can't give you the specifics, but um, there's a lot of things we need to question about the judicial system and the integrity of it. But that one little piece, I don't think we need to. Um, yeah, and Lori points out maybe we need to do a whole episode talking about the duties of a judge. That could very well be. Why don't you throw that on that spreadsheet, Lori? We have, uh, well, 52, 52 episodes we'll be doing this year. So um, at least 52. So um, 
I guess that is a topic we'll be able to discuss. Again, thanks guys for all the questions. It really does help to know uh, how I can better enable you to understand the hot topics of the day, how I can better empower you to fight back against government overreach. And I will do my absolute best to do uh, full episodes, devote full episodes in the future to the topics that you're bringing up now. If it's not something that we can fully do justice in a few moments uh, on the current episode, uh, do keep in mind that uh, give you a little sneak peek for what I believe will be uh, the next two weeks of the Restore Freedom weekly episodes. I believe we may be interviewing the uh, Republican nominee for Michigan Secretary of State, my dear friend Christina, as well as one of the leading uh, Republican candidates for governor in the state of Michigan. I will also be uh, opening up the um, opportunity to the other candidates as well. Any candidate doesn't even have to be of the Republican Party uh, who would like to be interviewed on uh, their race for a statewide office in the state of Michigan. Uh, so if you know of somebody, you're working on somebody's campaign and uh, you you know think they'd be interested in doing that, uh, by all means, have them get in touch with us and we would love to have them on. It'd be a separate day for an interview because what I really want to do is kind of like we did with Ryan last week for Michigan AG. I, I really want to devote that whole hour or at least 45 minutes to an hour of um, discussion and answering questions so you can really get to know where that candidate stands on very important constitutional issues. So, uh, yep, if you know Steve, Kara, and you want me to um, uh, interview him, you can go ahead. Uh, Ryan Kelly, you don't have to contact him because he is the one that I will be interviewing uh, at some point in the next week or two. I think it might be next week. Um, so, anyway, any of these individuals, I mean, shoot, even if Whitmer, Benson, um, uh, Nestle, if any of them want to participate and be interviewed as a candidate for the upcoming general elections, I'd be happy to do that too. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining today. And uh, I hope you have a, an awesome afternoon. And I will try to send as much of the Florida sunshine up to Michigan today as I possibly can. Otherwise, come down and visit. We're here. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful day.